Are you developing IoT solutions? Get ready for tomorrow with Farnell, supporting your design journey from connecting smart sensors to the cloud to implementing AI. Find everything you need at Farnell.com. Enjoy this episode with Farnell, a global distributor of electronic products and solutions. So welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith, I'm editor of New Civil Engineer, and I'm your host for today's instalment, where we're going to be exploring how sensor technology has evolved and what the change has delivered for infrastructure projects and what future developments are in the pipeline to further change how we use infrastructure asset data, predict and plan our work. My guest for today's episode, which is brought to you in partnership with Farnell Electronics, is Bryn Smith, who is Chief Technical Officer with Wireless Condition Monitoring Systems and technology firm Senseeve. Bryn is an electronics engineer who's been working with wireless sensor networks since his computer science studies in Melbourne in the mid-2000s. After a few years writing embedded firmware for cars, he packed up and moved to London in 2012 and joined Senseeve. On moving back to Australia, he opened a small office for Senseeve in Perth, which handles cloud software development and regional customer support. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Bryn. Thanks. So this is such a technical and wide-ranging subject, it's really hard to know where to start. But could we kick off with a general overview of the types of application in construction and the infrastructure sector that now use sensor technology? Yes, well, look, the, in, the infrastructure and construction areas, they've, they've been using sensor technology for decades. It's not really new, new, but it's growing all the time and, and we're seeing a lot of changes. So the, the simplest kind of place to start when you're talking about monitoring with sensors is, I mean, everyone's got a brick wall that's got a crack in it, right? Um, so, and for decades, uh, people have been, and probably centuries actually, people have been monitoring cracks in buildings, in structures, whatever. So you, the manual monitoring technology for that is crack telltales. So they're little, little see-through cards that you might screw to the wall either side of the crack and you can see the little pointers move over time. Or, I mean, even if, if you want to go even more basic than that, you can you know, put a smear of mortar over a crack and if it breaks, then the wall's still moving and it's pretty basic stuff. Um, nowadays, we see that replaced by position sensors, uh, potentiometers, strain gauges, things like that. So that's where you've got uh, a sensor that's placed across the crack and it's measuring and able to properly sense the change in, in dimension there. We see a lot of sensors used in the geo geotechnical area. Um, so when you're talking about ground structures and, and um, so the, the, bit, the bits your building sits on, I suppose. So groundwater level is, is a classic. Um, you, know, you might have boreholes all over your site where you're monitoring the water level, you're monitoring dissolved solids, monitoring things like that, properties of your groundwater that you're, that you're building on top of. And traditionally you'd measure that with dip tapes or just a bucket down to try and get a sample and then send it off to the lab. But nowadays uh, people drill a borehole the same as before and then drop a pizza down and just have it sit at the bottom of the borehole. And that's a transducer that can measure pressure. With that pressure measurement, you can then determine how much water there is above the level of the sensor. And so you're not having to go out there all the time and you know, drop your bucket down, drop your dip tape down to try and figure out what the water level is. And you can get conductivity probes to do your you know, lab measurement equivalent if you, if you want to drop, if you need to measure that kind of uh, property. 
And then, of course, when you start talking about structures, you need to think about the deformation of structures. They do shift and change, and especially when someone's you know, digging a basement. I, I always use the example of digging a basement next to a railway track because it kind of encapsulates a lot of the problems that we uh, get brought in on. So you, it, when you've got a structure that's already there, you want to measure how it's moving, and you might be concerned about a particular structural element moving or tilting or, or whatever. So traditionally that was measured by surveyors. Uh, you bring in your theodolites and your tape measure and things like that, and you can calculate the position changes and inclination changes. And I'm far from being an expert on surveying. I know sort of vaguely what goes on there, but surveyors are experts. They do their thing, and I treat their data as gospel because that's, that's not my job to try and second-guess them. <laughs> The, you know, there's still manual surveys that go, go on all the time across a huge number of the projects that we work on. Uh, and that's fine, especially if you're only doing occasional surveys, perfect. So if you take the traditional survey approach, there's a way to automate that. It's called a robotic total station. They've been growing and growing in popularity for decades now. Um, it's probably a bit more complicated than just a sensor because it's a bunch of sensors and mechanics and whatnot in, in one package. It's basically automating the same process that a surveyor would have done, you know, 24 seven, I suppose. But we're seeing now, you, you can you can take a, take a total station and take your survey measurements and then you transform that and, and interpret that as movements of a particular structure. But now with the advances in sensor technology, what, we, what people are doing more and more is actually just going back to the principle of, okay, I want to measure if this particular element is tilting, so let's put a tilt sensor on it. Let's see if these two elements are moving further apart or closer together, so let's put a laser sensor in there so we can directly measure the particular properties that we're interested in. The survey is still useful to get a, an overall picture of what's going on. It's not like the sensors can do the same job as a surveyor. But in a lot of applications, when you're worried about particular things moving or particular things changing, then you can just, often you can just slap a sensor on those particular things and get a simpler picture. There's also the rise of GNSS, so it's direct position sensing using satellites. And GPS is a particular flavor of GNSS um, I think everyone kind of knows what GPS is, so I won't go into that. So, so your GNSS sensor, you can strap it to a building or strap it to a structure, put it in the ground, and it will be measuring relative positional movements using satellites and, and with a lot of correction and very funky stuff that goes on inside those particular pieces of kit. That's probably a little bit closer to a sensor, I suppose, than a total station, but we're starting to see those, well, we have been seeing those becoming more and more popular as the accuracy improves. I suppose that's a sensor and another use of sensor in sensors in construction. So you've definitely seen a growing uptake of the use of it in the last decade, particularly around the automated side of things. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and I mean, in the last decade, that's about, about the time that I've been at Sensive, isn't it? Um, so, you know, 10 years ago when I joined Sensive, we, we saw a lot of people mainly because we're a wireless company and wireless wasn't really a thing at that time. Um, so I can still see at that time, even though I wasn't involved, directly involved in, in all of these conversations, 
there were stacks of meetings. We had our, our CEO and CTO all the time going out to meetings with consultants and asset owners and monitoring companies and all sorts of people like that, trying to convince them that, yes, you, the wired sensors that we're offering work, they will measure your structure, measure your building site, measure your whatever, please give it a try. And we're doing lots and lots of trials, small-scale trials and things like that, trying to convince people that, yes, this is a technology that, that can really work. And trials are great and, and, and we need to do them, but it's, it's often quite a headache and quite a burden to try and manage a trial, especially on something like a, a rail um, rail infrastructure is, is notorious for requiring lots of approvals and paperwork and it's it's convincing the, the signalling people that the tiny little wireless transmitter that's transmitting a fraction of the power level of your mobile phone won't destroy the signalling system or knock out the power or the solar panel from our gateway might, uh, you know, cause reflections, sunlight reflections into the driver's eyes and things like that, you know. Lots of lots of approvals and convincing people it goes into even getting a small scale trial up on a railway system. And with only five of us in the company at the time, it's a fairly big burden, especially when it mainly fell on the C on the COO, I think, from uh, from memory, to try and pull together the paperwork and convince them on a technical level. Uh, Simon was quite busy during that time. You definitely see the change in the last 10 years, though. People are far more accepting and far more wanting to actually use that kind of technology. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Customers are really a lot more trusting of wireless now. They're, they're Generally speaking, wireless isn't the issue. And that probably changed. I don't know, when did that change? About five, six years ago, at least. I think it was all of those conversations up front, back, you know, about 10 years ago, about... 10 plus years ago where it was kind of just chipping away at that that concern that wireless concern and now that's mostly gone I mean we still have approvals issues you know going into a a new rail go to a new rail operator and they'll want to see all of your paperwork to prove that your wireless is safe and it's not going to interfere with the signaling systems which is fine we can do that we do that all the time but yeah people do generally speaking trust the wireless aspect of it a lot more now than than they did which obviously helps us a lot. It also helps that we've got a broader sensor range. Back in the day, we could, back 10 years ago, we just had a dual axis tilt sensor and crack sensor. And you can do a lot with tilt and crack. We survived for a long time just with tilt and crack, but with a broader sensor range, it really opens up, especially those geotechnical applications that I was talking about earlier. If you're trying to measure water level, you can't really do that with a, with a, a tilt or a crack sensor. And you need the whole range of things. So I think um, I first came across sensors from Sensive when you were working on a project that was being undertaken by Costain and Lang O'Rourke to upgrade Bond Street's tube station in London. And they were trying to put a new um, ground ticket hall below ground with passageways as well. It was about 10 years ago, so it must have been around the time you joined Sensive. Their sensors were being used to monitor the tunnel lining during grouting. Can you use that project as an example to explain what you did there in 2012 and what the technology was like and perhaps what you would do differently if you were starting that project today, just to show how the technology has perhaps evolved a bit? Sure, yeah, The so that was the um, Bond Street Tunnel Grouting shop. That that, um, that project actually finished the year before I um, was hired into Sensi, but certainly what we learned from that was something that, that was really instilled into me and, and I, I, I kind of got the full story overall, over drip-fed over the years, I suppose. So for that project, I'll just quickly 
maybe explain the, the grouting process. So in a nutshell, the Jubilee line through that section, the, the, the London Underground line through that section of London is cast iron tunnel segments bolted together. And London Underground had identified that there were was water surrounding the tunnel rather than dirt. There were some, some gaps there, some voids. And to stabilise the tunnel in the face of the new building works, they, they needed to grout, which is to pump high-pressure concrete in behind the tunnel lining to fill those gaps and force the water out. So what they did was they, they had a team of, uh, a team of grouting, a grouting team, I suppose, who would go in and set up at, say, 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning when the, when, the, when the power for the trains get switched off, set up all your high-pressure pumps, you know, stick your, your grouting uh, nozzles in through the tunnel wall and start pumping high-pressure concrete. And that would cause a distortion in the tunnel, a, a, shape, a shape change in the tunnel. So if you pump in, pump in concrete at the sides, it's going to try and, the, the tunnel's going to try and become taller and, and vice versa. And what they wanted to do was measure the shape change. So there wasn't really any other technology that could do that at the time. You, there's no clear lines of sight because there's people everywhere, so you can't really send a survey team in or use a total station. Um, a wired system would have been a problem because they were trying to hop down the tunnel and do different sections of the tunnel each night. So if you had a wired system up, you either had to build out the wired system across the whole length of the whole tunnel that you were going to do, which would have cost a fortune in sensors and wires, or you'd have to rebuild your wired sensor system each night, which would have been an absolute pain. So yeah, wireless system, tilt sensors on the on magnet mag mounted, uh, magnetically mounted nodes, they were fixed to the tunnel lining, and we built some trigonometric calculations into our web monitor software, and that was running on a laptop. Uh, you know, someone sitting on the rail with a laptop on their knees, uh, but but it was successful, and we were able to measure that distortion of the tunnel um, quite effectively. We we're actually awarded a UK patent for that uh, a couple of years later. So you know we have actually sort of proven it to a certain extent, I suppose. So what would you do differently if you were going back to that project today? What technology would you put in there and how different would that be in terms of efficiency or the information you would get from it? So a few years later, we um, did a project with tube lines where they were replacing the whole tunnel lining and it was all works at night. It was longer time period. So we actually put in two permanently mounted monitoring hubs, running a PC, running web monitor, all the calculations and data processing was done in the tunnel 24-7. And they had a Wi-Fi link from the engineering train, which is what was lifting the new tunnel segments in and out. So there's a Wi-Fi link back to the, the engineer who was sitting on that train um, on, on the night shifts. And uh, about at one and a half kilometres of fibre optic cabling. So the system could run 24-7 rather than just during the night shifts. So that improved the richness of the data that was available to tube lines and also meant that during the day you could wander down to Bond Street Station platform and if you knew the credentials, you could log into the Wi-Fi and actually download the data or you know, maintain it or whatever. After that, look, though, we, had, we implemented some pretty serious platform upgrades. So our wireless became a lot more advanced um, we've now got better tilt sensors. So nowadays, 
you know, you'd probably just use a few nano plus nodes, which is where that, that uses our new flat mesh radios that we introduced back in 2014. Um, and that allows readings a lot faster than what was available at Bond Street. I think we were doing one reading every four minutes at Bond Street. Now we can do one read, one reading every couple of seconds. And also the new triaxial tilt sensors that we brought in about five years ago, you don't need to worry so much about leveling the node with the old nodes. You'd have to put them in and then use the spirit level because when you've got lots of curves in the tunnel, it's very hard to get something approximately level without a spirit level. Whereas with the triaxial mode, the range is unlimited. You just put it on the wall, have it face roughly the right way, and you're fine. You don't need to worry about, you know, precisely monitoring, uh, leveling anything. And the new system, the new nodes and the new system, they're lighter and they use less power. Less power is a big deal. Of course, the battery life's longer, etc. So you're really getting a lot more data, a lot more quickly, and you're able to install far quicker than ever before. Yes, and you and you you're carrying less when you go down to the tunnel as well. Um, manual, uh, you know, manual handling is actually a pretty serious safety issue, um, especially on those kind in those kinds of environments. Um, I, I suspect you've probably walked down a railway track before on a very on a site visit or something like that. For anyone who hasn't, it's actually a really awkward thing to do to walk on ballast, to walk on the walk down along the track. It's really uncomfortable, <laughs> particularly when you're carrying a lot of kit as well. Indeed, yeah. We I I did the um, initial box tunnel site survey um, years ago, and uh, the the access point for the box tunnel was one kilometre from the first from one end of the tunnel and there was another kilometre through the tunnel and then back again. So, um, which isn't that bad, I think, from what I hear from the guys who go out, go out on site all the time. Um, no, not bad for your step count, though. Get your step count <laughs> up each day. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So since then, what's been the main driver for greater use of sensors other than actually the, being able to get more, more of them in and getting more data? Is it the cost of the sensors come down or is it because... The more they've got more robust electronics or is the industry better equipped to actually handle the data that's coming out of the sensors that's creating an appetite for it look i think it's a it's a few things it's partly what you've what you've just suggested there but actually a lot of it i think is down to previous systems being impractical or too awkward or too expensive well, i suppose that the cost thing isn't it too expensive yeah. <laughs> um, too expensive lifetime cost mainly rather than the sticker price so traditionally, people would use wired systems for sensors. You know, wireless, people weren't using wireless until you know, about 10 years ago. In many situations, wired systems are quite impractical. They use more power, they, you need to run the wires, you need to keep maintaining the system, all that kind of stuff. And, and look, a classic example of that is railway earthworks monitoring. And, and there's... Um, Victorian era earthworks all over the United Kingdom um, and in many other countries as well but obviously I'm more familiar with the UK market so that's uh, when we're talking about earthworks we're talking about embankments where the railway line is raised up relative to the surrounding ground in order to try and keep it relatively level and also cuttings were pretty um, seriously dangerous areas as well you know, when, when they were built back mid-last, mid, not mid-last century, mid-century before last, so mid-19th century, they were doing the best they knew, I suppose, as civil engineers at the time. And now we know more, but earth movements are notoriously unpredictable. So 
look, we have land slips, we have earthworks failures, they happen. And so we need to, and so monitoring for that has previously been fairly impractical. Putting a, a robotic total station out would be extremely expensive and extremely um, prone to theft, vandalism, etc. And you need maintenance, power, etc. So yeah, sensors make sense, but if you wanted to deploy a wired system out there, you'd have a nightmare of cabling, and then you've got to try and maintain the system. Also, often you you need a bit more, you know, you need power for a lot of these wired systems. Not all, but but some of them you do. Um, and access, getting all of the equipment in, like we said before about you know railways, railway side access, it's all the same problems again. So. When you've got a wireless solution with a suitably long battery life, and that means that you can deploy it and then not worry about it for a few years, you don't have to send people out there all the time, which reduces your overall overall system cost. So having a suitably long battery life makes a huge difference. And robust and reliable wireless also makes the difference as well. So can you give me another example of a project you've worked on recently to demonstrate the capabilities that the construction industry now has available? So the, the Tideway project, which is a huge construction project, building a new sewer th right through the middle of London, um, is very famous. People can go and Google it and find out a lot more than I, I know about all this stuff. I had to refresh my memory from their website and a few other bits and pieces. So we were involved on... Um, quite a few tideway projects where you were actually monitoring structures nearby that might have been affected by the uh, the tideway tunnel drives and tunnel tideway deing. Um, the first one that I recall as being involved on uh, was a, uh, a DLR viaduct, so the Docklands Light Railway viaduct over near Greenwich pumping station. And for tideway, they needed to sink a 50 metre deep tunnel very close to the, the light rail viaduct and so they're monitoring the track geometry making sure that the track doesn't the track slab doesn't tilt out of spec and whatnot now this is a bit bit of a tricky one of course you access is difficult because it's on a railway viaduct up in the air and we ran into it was some interesting requirements on that where they were looking to do most of their monitoring at say you know 15 minute half an hour intervals Perfectly fine, no problems there. That's that's bread and butter day to day stuff. But they then they wanted a forty eight hour period uh, where they wanted one second intervals between readings. That's a bit more challenging, of course. And it requires you to kind of re remotely reconfigure the system to do this high high reporting rate one second period, and then remotely reconfigure it back to what it was. And we had to do a little bit of little bit of work to make sure that all of that tooling was up to scratch, but essentially the system was capable of it, and we were able to we were able to support that. It was a it was an interesting um, interesting challenge, and of course there was no mains power available, despite the fact that the building site whatever we actually often we're better off just running on a solar panel because someone will unplug the gateway and then forget to plug it back in again, um, and of course you, we we could do this. With our uh, with our flat mesh system, with no mains power, no no cabling, nothing. It's all just running, just just bolted to the wall, no problem. That was a that was quite an interesting interesting project, interesting aspect of it. There are other bits of tideway as well. Uh, we we monitored a section of the Waterloo and City Line. So for people who don't know, the Waterloo and City Line is uh, the shortest route, London Underground Tunnel, 
It's built in the 1890s. It runs between Waterloo and Bank Station. And uh, the tideway tunnel drivers go directly under it. And so we were monitoring the, ch the track geometry to make sure that it was all, well, not, not moving out of spec once again. There's no continuous mains power available in the monitoring zone, which is a kilometre from Bank Station. And this is pretty classic, you know, you think about an electrified railway and yeah, of course you've got power everywhere, right? It's, it's running trains, <laughs> they're electric trains. There's no usable mains power for auxiliary stuff, monitoring equipment, things like that often in these sorts of places. And, and sometimes it requires an electrician to come in and drag a power cable from the nearest station. Not a lot of fun to organize, but um, yes, we can sometimes have to do that. Um, and, and look, what we did for the Waterloo and Sea Line, we had to, we ended up, because there wasn't any mains power available at the, at the monitoring zone, we needed to get comms back to Bank Station. Uh, we ended up building a, a bespoke monitoring hub system just to try and solve the problem for that particular project. So a bit bigger battery backup and moving some of the high power kit back to Bank. So there's an interesting, interesting little challenge there. Um, and finally, I think further, further east, as you go further east, you've got Rotherhive Tunnel which is, you know, ancient, I say ancient, 1900s road <laughs> tunnel, um, big ventilation shaft, historic ventilation shaft, you know, historic listed building type thing. Um, and Tideway's got a sink, a 60 metre deep shaft right next to it. Um, and so our system was put in to monitor the tunnel structure and also the, um, the ventilation shaft, just with point tilt nodes. Um, Pretty simple installation, I think, just a single screw into the into the wall at each of the each of the zones, some bespoke bracketry to try and minimize the impact on the historic structure. But there was you know extremely limited access once again because it's above a road. Um, and then apparently they run a cleaning vehicle through the uh, Rotherhithe tunnel twice a month. So they've got presumably big wire bristles, a bit like a reverse version of a car wash, <laughs> where they're where they're uh, Running, running this this big thing through the tunnel to try and clean the walls down. Um, that was there was a bit of concern about that, but the, the sensors survive it fine. There's no problems there. So that really demonstrates how robust they are now that you can do that. Yes, well, we we actually had one dropped on a on a um, sort of mid-rise building site in uh, in London quite a few years ago. It was back what was that back 2015 or so. I think it was dropped off about the 30th floor um, scaffolding and hit the ground. Had a bit of a ding inside, but apart from that, the sensor seemed to be working fine. I think we changed the enclosure and that was about it. It was, it was perfectly all right. It's <laughs> amazing because you think of this kind of electronics, you think of it being very, very sensitive, but clearly it's very robust and very suitable for construction. Yes, well, actually, the... Uh, the rail environment is probably worse than construction in many respects. Um, we've had to put out, because we often do uh, track geometry measurement where we glue the nodes down to the railway sleepers. They have to pass some fairly severe uh, vibration and shock tests. And it's actually the shocks when the train goes over that's the worst. Um, the vibration is kind of less of a big deal, but, but the, the big shocks when the train wheels go over the sleepers and if the sleeper is a little bit uh, unsupported by the ballast, it can, uh, it can be uh, quite punishing. But no, our sensors are definitely designed to, to cope with that and survive those kinds of conditions. 
So there's some really interesting applications there you outlined on Tideway, but what are the barriers to more projects taking up solutions like that? So a lot of it certainly was, and I think still is to to an extent, um, general awareness and people being willing to try new methods. The survey industry is quite conservative. Uh, I mean, it's been around for a very long time. Um, You know, we're talking, is is it thousands of years for the survey industry? Ancient Greeks? That's the one. Anyway, survey industry is quite conservative. The monitoring industry is essentially a derivative of the survey industry. So you end up with people who have a known and trusted and tried method and often trying to convince people to try something new um, gets a bit tricky. It kind of goes back to that whole 10 years ago, convincing people that, yeah, it's wireless and, yes, I promise it will work and please give it a try. And a lot of it is also was also and still is to an extent about meeting the monitoring specification so on any significant project um, the contractor the main contractor is going to have to go out to get a monitoring specification written by some professional engineers in order to satisfy the asset owners in the surrounding area and usually the monitoring specification is going to be written with total stations in mind or at least whatever the traditional methods are in mind and then trying to convince people that yes we can do the equivalent to what you've got there on the monitoring spec but with direct sensing so with tilt sensors or with um, laser displacement sensors yes we can do that we can solve that same problem just with different equipment and then getting that accepted can be a bit tricky and, and you know more recently we're seeing more and more monitoring specs, fortunately, that now have provision for direct sensing, which um, which makes a huge difference. So, so it's generally around industry knowledge that's one of the challenges. What, what else are the barriers that you come up against? Uh, sometimes it's the perceived cost. And um, and I say perceived cost because it's, it's all about the total cost of the project, which really people sometimes miss. And they look at the cost of the instrumentation. Sometimes your wireless sensors are going to be a bit more expensive than your wired sensors, sure. But they don't need much in the way of maintenance. And and yes, a wireless sensor is more expensive than a total station prism. Yes, that is definitely going to be the case. But then you don't need to come back and clean the prisms and you don't have to buy the total station or hire the total station and then send it out for calibration every 12 months or six months or whatever it is. Um, also, the wireless sensors are a lot more resilient to damage and uh, site conditions. We talked about rather high tunnel before, um, and you know, falling off a falling off a scaffold. Although that's not one that I'd recommend. <laughs> I've uh, I've heard stories from some of my former colleagues that uh, about big scale wired systems on building sites where you've got kilometres and kilometres of cabling, and and you could, you might have a bundle of thirty sensor wires. All, all bundled together to run across a section of the site and, and a, a builder needed to come and, you know, lay some concrete there. So they cut the cable there and, you know, at each side of where they needed to pour the concrete. And then you've got 30 wires that you have to splice back together and try and figure out which one's which. Absolute nightmare. So, yes, and wireless obviously might have a higher sticker price, but then when you start taking into account all of those other side benefits and the maintenance and, and the ongoing costs, it, it often makes sense. So are there still some common misconceptions that you've come across when it comes to using sensor technology? 
Yeah, one of them that, that keeps coming up, and, and perhaps I'm, perhaps this is a slightly silly one. When we introduced our triaxial tilt sensors five years ago, I don't think there were too many others on the market at the time. I'm pretty sure we were first to the market. And um, and we label our axes X, Y, and Z, you know, tilt in three different directions. And then some people see the Z and say, well, that's measuring elevation, isn't it? So um, if I lift the sensor up, we'll put it further down. Can it detect that? And actually the answer is no, it doesn't because a tilt sensor, all the tilt sensor has is references the gravity vector. So the pull direction of gravity. If you don't change the angle of the tilt sensor relative to gravity, then it can't tell the difference. But maybe we should have named the axes something else. You know, maybe we should have called them A, B, and C instead. Or we could have used some Greek letters to really confuse people. Um, but that, that's that's one that does come up a bit. But it comes back to people actually understanding exactly what they're trying to measure and what that sensor does, the capabilities of it. Oh yes, yeah. And and look, it's 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 not often that we come up against that one, but it does happen occasionally. Um, and yeah, but but you're right. It is. It's about what you're trying to measure, and that's the other one that we that we do come up against a bit. Uh, and that's where people are trying to carry over the sensors from their old wired systems. And remember what I said before about wired systems, you know, you've got kilometres of cabling or, you know, maybe your cable run to your sensor is, you know, one or 200 metres. And you need to have more complicated, often more complicated or higher power sensor interfaces. So that's the electrical characteristics of the signal in order to get a good signal over that one, two, 300 meter cable run. And so people will come along to us and say, um, can I connect my XYZ sensor that I've been using previously to your system? And what we try and do in those situations is, is exactly what you said, which is to go back and try and figure out what the customer's trying to measure. What, what do you, What's the property of the structure or the ground or whatever that you're trying to measure? And often we'll come up with a different solution that we already have in place, already have support for, and also might give them better battery life compared to if we'd just blindly implemented um, some other uh, high power, you know, traditional wired sensing style sensor interface. So what about the future? Everyone talks about the fast-paced development when it comes to electronics. What kind of technology are you seeing coming through from manufacturers and suppliers like Farnell that will create further evolution in the construction sensor market? So the, the fairly obvious one is, is advancements in processing power, and everyone sees this with you know your mobile phones and your laptops and whatever. Um, they might not seem to go any faster, but there is actually a faster process. They're buried in there somewhere. It's just doing more things nowadays. Conversely, on our end, we don't take that approach because um, we don't need a huge amount of processing power for a sensor node or something like that to work. So when you, we can get a, a processor that runs faster but doesn't use a correspondingly greater amount of energy, it means that we can run it for a shorter time to do the same job and then turn it off. So... The, a lot of the advances in the battery life that we've managed to achieve over the last 10 years have actually been because our sensor nodes spend more time in low power modes compared to their previous generation. And that means that we can reduce the size of the batteries for a lot of projects. You know, let's say you've got a 
two-year construction project. You don't really need 15 years of battery life. So that's where we that's where we brought in the Nano and Nano Plus sensor nodes, which use smaller batteries, and it's it's a smaller, more lightweight package, like we talked about before in the tunnels, and you're not trying to lug huge boxes of very heavy equipment down the tunnel. We're also seeing, obviously, I think with the green power revolution, we're seeing a lot of investment going into lithium-ion battery research, you know, that's coming out of electric vehicles and, and things like that. And look, maybe some of those innovations are going to flow into, into the sensor space. We don't use lithium-ion batteries in our products apart from in gateways, uh, which are re rechargeable devices. Practically everything else is just uses primary lithium cells, so they're just non-rechargeable cells. That's just to keep things simple and because you can actually fit a huge amount of energy in them. So maybe we'll see some advancements coming out of battery research. Uh, we'll, you know, we keep an eye on that, of course. The other things that we see coming through um, are new functionality. So we're, we're seeing advancements in the commercial and industrial space that we can then piggyback on. So it's um, things like NFC communication, um, and people might be familiar with that from their, you know, from their Oyster card or from uh, the, the credit card contactless payment. And so that allows us, when we integrate it into our product, it allows us to do configuration and, and data transfers without opening the lid of the device. You can keep a sealed box. You don't need to have a waterproof connector on the side, which someone might forget to cover up again or put the cap back on. So, so it's becoming even more wireless, basically. Well, indeed, yes. So it's it's coming down from the, the smart card and the mobile phone industries, which means it's highly standardised as well. So it means we can more easily cross across different manufacturers with no problems. And, uh, and of course, there's always storage and memory. Storage and memory becomes higher and higher density all the time, cheaper, more reliable. And, you know, we're not going to be at the cutting edge of this stuff. We're not using the same chips that go in your mobile phone. But even industrial memory components are benefiting from those technological advances in the consumer space. So it's New Civil Engineer's 50th anniversary this year, and we spent some time looking back over the last 50 years to review how the sector's changed in that time. And sensor technology is certainly something that's gone from nowhere to be a key part of the industry, particularly around the kind of sensors you're looking at. But where do you think we could get to in another 50 years? How do you think we'll be using sensor technology in construction and the infrastructure sector in 2072? And what will that give us that we don't have today? need you get your crystal ball out now and doing some predictions all right crystal ball time fun yeah <laughs> um well i can always lean on what we what we're already currently seeing just at the edges just at the margins and that's where you're talking people are looking at whole of life cycle monitoring so they want to measure embed the sensors in the structures and then monitor them for the whole lifetime life cycle and sensors embedded in structures is new uh, I know uh, that there are sensors embedded in, in the channel tunnel. I know there are sensors embedded in various dams, other structures, things like that. They were built decades ago, that's fine. But actually embedding sensors with wireless recording and wireless data logging features inside is uh, something that I'm not aware of too many people doing. We, we did a proof of concept for it in, in the Northern Lydon Extension near Battersea. Um, so we were able to embed some wireless sensors in the tunnel lining before it was put into place, uh, and you know, with you know, with 
agreement and working with London Underground on that. It's a re really interesting project. We're also seeing increases all the time for higher density monitoring, and that's spatial, i.e. more sensors, more dense, denser deployment of sensors. And also in terms of time, we talked about faster reporting rates earlier. That's partly because you can, but we also see that there are some people looking to do it for specialist situations, uh, like the, actually a bit like the, the Tideway um, DLR Viaduct project that we talked about earlier, where you might have a particular high, a particular time period where you want to have a very high density of, um, of reporting. We're also seeing people pooling data from different technologies. So that's where you're taking your um, manual monitoring data and your total station data and your groundwater information and you're trying to put it together with your tilt sensor data and trying to draw greater conclusions from, from the whole of the data set rather than just from bits and pieces. One of the thought bubbles, I'll, I'll say thought bubbles because it's um, definitely crystal ballish. <laughs> I'm wondering whether we might start to see, as GNSS, the satellite sensing type sensors improve and drop in cost, I wonder if we might start to see those being deployed more and more in place of total stations. As the technology is maturing, as people are becoming more comfortable with it, once again, and as it drops in cost, then we're probably, for smaller sites, which don't use a lot of prisms for a total station, we might see sort of the level of the level of total station use settle out a bit. I don't know whether we'll see a, a massive decline in, in total station use and look underground and, and tunnel environments and things like that. You're still going to need to have those, but uh, it might be it might displace some of those. And um, and look, everyone talks about artificial intelligence, and I, I kind of hate the term artificial intelligence, but it is a it is obviously a big topic and we are seeing a lot of companies that are our customers and, and other organizations collecting huge data sets. Um, I know that Network Rail is doing this, for example, with, with a lot of their with a lot of the data that they're collecting from their earthworks and also and all sorts of other sensors and, and structures all over the their um, infrastructure. And they're collecting those huge data sets and training machine learning models on those to try and um, develop predictive models and things like that. And look, it, you know, I'm not saying we're going to be able to cut the structural engineers and the monitoring experts out of the loop because someone at the moment, at least for, for a while, for a long while, you're still going to need those people as the key decision makers. You're not going to have your machine learning model um, deciding when to stop the trains on the on network rail. That would probably be a, be a bad idea for quite a long time to come, but the model outputs are probably going to improve. Um, training processes for your machine learning models get better. Computation power becomes cheaper so you can throw bigger data sets at it. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that's going on and I, I think we're kind of powerless to stop it if we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> but it's making more efficient use of the people who have got those skills, isn't it? Rather than having to look at all of the data you're getting a rise of data analysts working in the industry that means that they can actually point out when there's a change, when there's something that actually needs a human eye to go and look at it and say, yes. there is a problem or isn't. Yeah, that's, that is an interesting um, 
and it, yeah, that is that is a way that we're a way of looking at it. But it's um, the question is how far that process goes, and and what it means in the long term. And and I think if any, I'm certainly loath to say that eventually we're going to be talking that, that we eventually we're going to have automatically monitored structures with uh, all the data flowing into a machine learning model and being analysed by an, an, a, the outputs of an ML model, which then makes the decision about whether the structure is safe or not and then automatically puts the shutters down. I'm not sure. I don't think that's going to happen in the next 50 years. No, I think we're still going to be using our Victorian infrastructure on our rail network, so that's always going to need someone to actually go and look at it and actually understand about what the engineering is there. So I'm, I'm afraid so. <laughs> brilliant. I think we've established that there is a growing role for sensor technology in the industry and there will still always be a role for engineers. Um, that's just about all we've got time for today. So thank you for joining me for this episode to explore how sensor technology has evolved to power changes in the construction industry and to look ahead what will happen in the future too. So join us again soon for another episode of the Engineers Collective. This episode was brought to you by Farnell, your global distributor of electronic components, products and solutions. Visit farnell.com.